Well, thanks to our worship team for leading us this morning. You guys are not done yet. You know that. Um, But we get to take a break. You get to take a break, and we get to listen to God's Word together. We're continuing our sermon series looking at the book of James, and I've entitled it, Let's Climb. It's an invitation to an active faith life. And so Pastor Harrison and I have uh, each week decided that we want to focus on a real-life temptation that keeps us from engaging in the active faith life with God. What I mean by that is that we know from our, our physical uh, experiences, right, that if you have a sore spot in your hip, I have a sore spot in my hip this week, and what you don't want to do is move it. You just sort of want to walk with, but you can't walk with one leg, right? So you have to find ways to exercise those muscles. And temptation keeps us from doing that. This morning, as we open up the book of James and as we look at what it means to climb together in an active faith life, we're going to uh, see and hear James's warning about favoritism. So I'll read from James chapter one or chapter two, excuse me, verses one through thirteen, and then uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your midst, your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and also a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or here, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you, not show, have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that God promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak then, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So far, the reading of God's word. And we return to our topic for the day, love without favoritism. This week, we got a new printer at the church. And in order to test my computer and see if it was working, I printed off the first page of my sermon on Tuesday at our staff meeting. And one member of our staff picked up the front page of my sermon, read the title, and said, Love Without Favoritism, oof, good luck with that. That's tough. Any journey from inactivity toward activity is difficult to begin Maybe some of you have planned to be more active this year, but despite your good intent, you still haven't really started. Or maybe you've started but already fallen away or given up. 
our habits and our ways of being are difficult to break. And in a sinful world, our habits tend to pull us back to the inertia, the lack of movement that we talked about on New Year's Day. Love without favoritism might feel like a new exercise that we just can't seem to get the hang of. And if it seems difficult or even impossible, it might be because we don't quite know where to begin or how to begin. We can probably see if we think for just a few minutes that love without favoritism sounds like it's going to require more than love with favoritism. Now, love without favoritism uh, is going to require that we love people that we don't normally love now. It's going to require more as we begin to love people who are different from us. And certainly it would require less to just keep loving people who are the, sim- who are the similar or the same as we are. But loving without favoritism isn't hard because it's wrong. I want to suggest to you that loving without favoritism is difficult because we are out of shape. So how can we start and why do we start? Well, very simply, we don't love without favoritism when we're, tr- we're focused on trying to make ourselves flourish. Trying to make ourselves flourish is, I think, one of the main reasons why we don't start and continue Loving without favoritism. Trying to make ourselves flourish means rejecting God's good plan and going our own way. Trying to provide for our own lives, our own needs, our own hopes. Practically, trying to make ourselves flourish looks like both pride and exhaustion. When we're thinking about pride... I think that we're always tempted to judge others. And maybe we wouldn't say some of these things out loud, but we think of ourselves as being better than others. We have a way that works for us and maybe a way that's best. These temptations lead us, when we look at others, to discriminate against them or maybe to keep some distance from other people based on our worldly view of them. We look at others' lifestyles, their thoughts, their views, their appearance. Or we look at things like people from a different gender or group, ethnic group, people with different amounts of wealth or education or position or social class. All of these things, for different, for different ones of us, each of these things is maybe the thing that makes us keep a little bit of distance from someone in a different group. We also treat people differently based on what we can get from them or how they might be helpful to us. That's also a kind of favoritism and a kind of self working for ourselves. So we draw near to people that we think might be helpful now or maybe they can give us something later. Spiritual laziness and indifference is also a part of these temptations. We don't ask God to work on some areas of our lives because even when we feel burdened or less motivated, we know we should grow mature in these areas, but we just don't put in the effort. Another reason why we don't love without favoritism is exhaustion. We could talk about exhaustion in terms of spiritual laziness or indifference or even imbalance. Again, I think it's helpful to use an analogy from 
our physical lives and our physical health. If you're trying to get physically fit, if you want to be stronger, then if you go to the gym or you have a personal trainer, the first thing they're going to tell you is that you need to work out your whole body. It doesn't matter if you want to have uh, beautiful legs or if you want to have strong arms, you need to work out your whole body, otherwise you're going to become imbalanced. The simplest way to put this is that picture behind me, right? Uh, If you go to gyms, you've probably heard it. Don't skip leg day. If your life is unbalanced, you might look strong, right? But you'll very quickly become exhausted. And then just after that, probably give up. This exhaustion is, or this exhaustion and imbalance is a kind of laziness that I think is also connected to our pride, right? Someone working out uh, and forgetting his legs is because he's proud of his biceps. Or some of us ignoring loving people who are different from us is because we're proud of how we look, proud of our way of being. We spend so much time looking at ourselves that it seems exhausting to then look around at other people. Now, friends, God is not calling us to exhaust ourselves. In fact, it's our imbalanced priorities and our focus on ourselves that exhausts us. I wonder how many of you already in this new year, like your life is filling up more than you can handle. Is that God's intent for you? I would suggest that's what you're putting on yourself, what we put on ourselves. The extra projects and trips, the work for greater things, the desires for parents or children or siblings or friends to be a certain way or to change certain things. Sooner or later, the pressure we put on ourselves and on others just doesn't work. Sooner or later, I'm worn out and I can't do all of the responsibilities that I have. And so at that point, usually, I resign myself either to playing favorites and say, well, I'll just spend time with the people who are easiest and who are most like me. Or we just collapse and stop trying at all. Some of us may try to do it all. Others of us may just give up before we even start. But that's not what God is calling us to do, I don't think. Both pride and exhaustion are part of us trying to make flourishing happen for ourselves. But God has a different path and a different plan for us, a different way that he wants to lead us and walk alongside us. So let's pretend for a moment that you have the smallest capacity to love of anyone. You have a lot of a stress and exhaustion in your life. You might say to yourself, well, I don't have a problem with favoritism because I only have the ability to love one other person in my life. And I give all my energy and all my attention to that person. That's fine. If that's your situation, I want to encourage you and attend to James's words. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing what is right. James says that this law brings freedom So even if you can only love one other person, you still have an important choice. 
If you can only love one other person, the question is still, is that other person more important than you are or less? Is that other person equal to you or more important to you? Or are they less important? Are you going to work for your own flourishing first and then give what's left over to someone else? Or are you going to do it differently? Favoritism is about trying to create flourishing for myself or for my group, my, ourselves. And Jesus will always set us in the right direction on selfishness and on sin, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. James reminds us of Jesus' call to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves, not because it's Jesus' harsh instruction to us, but because it's God's plan and path for flourishing for us and it's God's example to us. That the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves and serves the Father. And likewise, that God has invited us to be his neighbors and more than his neighbors, to be his family, known by him, loved by him, served by him. This is not Jesus' harsh instruction for us. It's God's path to flourishing and to freedom. And this morning, James focuses on that second half of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we'll focus on that too as we continue. James reminds us that it's not just doing the right thing that pleases God. That there's no use in trying to follow the law perfectly. None of us can do it. Instead, what pleases God is doing the right thing for the right reason. And that right reason is always love. Because love moves us beyond pride and beyond self-focus. Love can lift us up out of, out of exhaustion. I invite you again to just quiet your heart and look inside yourself for a moment. I'm not going to ask anybody to put up any hands. But just consider the area of your life where you struggle the most. You probably know it without even needing more than a second or two. Our temptation as people living in a broken world is always to speak to others about where we're strongest and where they are weakest. One or the other, or maybe both. And then to keep that part where we are weakest quiet, hidden, and walled off from God, from others. But James reminds us that using guilt or shame to try and enforce other people's action or belief is useless. That even if you do all kinds of wonderful things, even if you keep the whole law, but stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Now we have people in our church, members of our congregation, who have broken every single one of God's commandments. And even as I say that, I wonder if your mind is drawn to others or to yourself. Do you want to quick go through the Ten Commandments and try and figure out who else sitting here has broken number seven or number nine or number three? I would encourage you instead to focus on your own hearts. If we remain focused on other people's sin and on our own sin, we only multiply shame. 
If we work for our own flourishing, personally or as a group, we multiply shame. What I mean by that is that if we're trying to push some people out, then we're creating an in-group and an out-group. People who belong and who have rights and standing and people who don't. If we're focused on our own flourishing, then we're separating ourselves from others. Trying to to work for our own good name, our own position, and, and separate ourselves or define ourselves as opposed to or separate from others. If we do not follow God's path, to God's path, excuse me, to love others as much as we love ourselves, we multiply shame because we create groups that seem best for me or best for us, and then also groups that exclude others, even if unintentionally. So what can we do then? There's so many opportunities and so many uh, paths ahead of us where we just end up right back where we started serving ourselves or alternatively excluding others. What can we do? Well, we do what we always do as God's people, which is turn our hearts to God, turn our hearts to God's word, and see what his goal is and how God wants to guide us forward. You see, there's only one person with whom we can align ourselves where shame will not increase, will not create more separation. And it's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the only one who loves perfectly, without favoritism. As that staff member said, right? Yeah, good luck loving without favoritism. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't follow the law perfectly by ourselves. But Jesus is the only one who loves perfectly, without favoritism. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That God was willing to give his son out of love for you. I imagine you've heard that verse from John 3.16 probably many times in your life. God so loved the world. You probably quote it from memory. But have you ever thought that God loves you as much as he loves his own son? That God loves you as much as he loves himself. God loves you as much as he loves himself. As my spiritual director says to me sometimes, let's not move too quickly past that. God loves you as much as he loves himself. Jesus had an opportunity to pick himself over humanity, and he chose humanity. This is where we're going to end Today, with God's amazing love for humanity in general, no, for you, for me, for those of us gathered here. God's amazing love is a love that invites every single person to be loved deeply by God and deeply as a part of God's family. This is the purpose of the church, God's church. And more specifically, the purpose of River Park Church as we try to step more and more into becoming a multicultural church. We want to make room for as many people as possible to experience and know the love of God and the love of God's family. We don't want anyone to walk away from our community and and not have the opportunity to know and experience the love of God 
And it's not about what one person says up front or, or what a few people do. It's the mission of our whole congregation to come together and work to make sure we can create as much room as possible so that everyone might know the love of God and the love of God's family. When we look at each other, the people we know intimately, the people who still are unfamiliar to us, when we look at one another, we can begin to see the love that God has for other people. But only after we experience God's deep love for ourselves. If the problem of favoritism is that we try to create flourishing for ourselves, then the solution is to look to God for flourishing. That is a difficult thing for us to do in our Western culture. Everything in, uh, everything in Canada, everything in Calgary pressures you to provide for yourself. Not to expect too much for the future and not to expect too much from others. The buck stops with you. But as we close in prayer, I want you again to consider the promises of God that you read in Scripture that we read together this morning, the promises of God that you hear in other parts as you come to him, not just in prayer now, but throughout the week. Consider whether you'll continue trying to provide freedom for yourself, trying to provide flourishing for yourself, or whether you'll take the first step in an active faith life and bring those hopes, bring your desire for flourishing to God an expectant prayer, depending on him and trusting him to provide what you need and so much more. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 13, which is where we often go in, uh, when we celebrate communion, but there's a part right before the part we usually read that we, usually, that we often skip. We're going to get to that in just a minute. It's a part about a church who people go ahead of one another. People are trying to provide for their own needs. And Paul says to them, well, that's not really communion. That's just you working for your own good name and calling it church. That's not what we're about. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that we can come to God in expectant prayer and that he will give us what we need? If not, Let's try it. Let's start together and start today. Please pray with me. Father God, it's so easy in our world to think that we need to do it all ourselves. That no one will care for me unless I care for me. No one will provide for me unless I provide for me. Each of us as individuals, as families, we know in different levels of detail the challenges, the cost, the difficulty of living in our world today. There are so many burdens and responsibilities and expectations that are beyond our ability to carry. And then we have the law as well. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we cannot keep the law ourselves that you have kept the law and invite us to share in the benefits of keeping the law. 
that you have provided a good and perfect way for us to be in relationship with God and with God's people. As we continue in our worship this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Build faith in us so that we might trust that when you give us the big things of life, salvation, membership in your family, and uh, active life together at River Park Church or in our own congregation, God, that you will give us the little things as well. Remind us, Lord, that if salvation and eternal life are not beyond you, then neither are our daily needs. So hear our prayer, Lord. Build faith in our hearts. And in a moment, as we take in the bread and juice, and in a spiritual way, as we take in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, may you give us yourself the greatest gift of all once again. And may you also provide for us so many other things that each of us needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're going to continue our worship by celebrating communion together. And I just want to invite you to, these words are not going to be on the screen, but I just want to invite you to listen as Paul writes to to the Corinthians. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. He's praised them for some things. But he says, your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there are differences uh, to show which of you, there no, no doubt there, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets, gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in, or do you despise the church of God? What's, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Certainly not. Paul is writing to a church that has a similar problem that James was writing toward. People who are taking care of their own needs first and leaving the rest or leaving the, the dregs, the leftovers for others. The situation of James, the situation of Paul is of course different from your situation. It's different from my situation. Our world has changed in many ways. But the temptation to take care of me first and see what's left for everyone else, that remains. And so into all of this, Paul says what James says, what Jesus says. Paul says, what did I pass on to you? I only passed on to you what I received from the Lord. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. Just as he had given himself to his disciples so many times before. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink from it. And do this, whenever you drink, do it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds that whoever eats this bread, whoever drinks this cup, proclaims the Lord's death 
until he comes again. What is Jesus' death? It's what Paul received from the Lord. The death of Jesus. That's what each of us as Christians receives from the Lord. The death of Jesus. Not so that we can walk around carrying death all the time, but so that in receiving the death of Jesus, we might also share in the life of Jesus. So I hear the crinkling of you opening your cups. There's a little wafer on the top. And there's gluten-free wafers also available in the back. And underneath the wafer, there's a little bit of juice. Brothers and sisters, receive what Jesus gave to Paul, to James, to his disciples, what he has given to you. Take, eat, remember, and believe the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given to you for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. Please pray with me. Father God, these are holy, special moments where we come together and acknowledge that each of us and all of us are sinners, that each of us and all of us fall short of your law and your ability, your perfect ability to keep it. And Lord, As these holy moments, as we gather together to proclaim our thanks, to share in your death and in your life, we say thank you. And furthermore, Lord, we say thank you that you have not left us to wait on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis that we might know our sin and celebrate the good news of your love for us and your life in us. That you continue to give us friends, family, partners in faith to walk with so that in everything we say and do, we might acknowledge that though we are sinners, that you love us, that you invite us into your family, that we might live and breathe the good news of your death and resurrection and our work and our play in every part of our lives. So Holy Spirit, fill our hearts, fill our bodies, Send us out together with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.